Well, I can't think of a better song uh, to get us excited to hear from God's Word. His mercy is more than our sin. Uh, That's good news, and that's something to rejoice in and be thankful for this morning. Um, Yeah, it's good to be here with you all. Um, Love gathering on Sunday to worship and love seeing you um, and just gathering and walking with you as we pursue Jesus and his kingdom and building his kingdom in this city. We're in a series in the book of Romans, and we spent some time uh, in Easter and Celebration Sunday in some different spots in Romans, and that was an exciting time in the life of the church as we reflect on and remember the resurrection of Jesus and celebrate what God is doing, and we want to continue to do that. But we're orienting ourselves back to the routine of going back through sections of Romans, and we're in Romans 3. So if you want to turn there, uh, that's going to be where we're at, Romans 3. I want to do a little recap of where we've been. Uh, As we have unpacked what Paul is, is teaching us and instructing us in, in the book of Romans, he starts by saying that he is an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And we've tried to uh, um, uncover and identify two dimensions of the gospel. God saves and God reigns. God saves. This is Christ as Savior, covenant Lord, this vertical dimension of the gospel. And it, it has more of an emphasis on the personal, relational aspect of the gospel. But then also, God reigns. This is that horizontal relationship, Christ as King, as cosmic Lord, who has all authority, reigning and ruling over all. And we want to hold both, and we want to identify where is Paul talking about both. God saves and God reigns. And then in chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, we see Paul's thesis statement for the whole book. And he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And we identified three components to the righteousness of God. One, his perfect moral character, his holiness, the standard by which he holds us to, and the standard by which we are trying to orient our lives. The second one is his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness, that when God makes promises, he delivers, he shows up, he comes through. And then the third one is righteousness from God, the gift of righteousness we receive by faith, and it is the righteousness of Christ. And then right after this thesis statement, Paul begins a large section on the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And he says, for the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness as humanity exchanges the truth about God for a lie and worships the creation instead of the creator. And as he's unpacking this, he knows uh, because of his Jewish heritage and, and where he came from and who he was before Jesus met him on the Damascus Road, he knows that there are attitudes, there are objections being stirred up in the Jewish Christian mind. Remember, in this letter, Paul is really, like underneath, the, one of the threads we see is he's trying to build a case for unity. Two ethnic groups, Jews and Gentiles, coming together to be one. 
And this was a hard thing in the first century. All over the New Testament, we see Paul laboring to make this case for unity. And in Romans 2, he addresses specifically the Jewish Christians and the attitude that would have been stirred up as he was talking about the wrath of God being revealed over all unrighteousness and ungodliness. He knew that in the Jew was thinking, yeah, I'm so glad I'm not like those sinners over there. Look at God's wrath down on them. And Paul says, be careful. Don't miss your sin. Don't miss that you don't have any hope in the the features of the old covenant. Those won't save you. And he hits on different features, the law, circumcision, and he dismantles them. And he's trying to build this case that all must respond to God's judgment. That all are under sin and all must respond to God's righteous judgment. And that brings us to chapter 3. And so let's read our passage this morning. Romans 3 verses 1 to 8. And after I read the passage, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond, thanks be to God. And this is a way that we confirm together and affirm that God has not left his people in silence, that he has spoken and given us the light of the word. So starting in verse 1. Then what What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we pause right here, having just heard from the word, the truth of God to his people. We ask that you would dwell with us this morning through your word. Jesus, you have been given all authority, all power, and dominion over all. And you have dominion here with your people. And I pray against the work of the enemy this morning as he tries to steal the word and trip up and distract and deceive. And in your name, we we bind him and pray that he would be chained up and sent away so that we, your people, could hear from your word and respond to it. Help us, Jesus. Amen. All right. So I, uh, I have something this morning um, that's going to help us. And you might have wondered that if this is my coffee or not. It's not my coffee. Um, I have um, a worm in here. And 
This worm, if I can grab it, is hard to grab a worm. There's the worm right there. And uh, this other worm in here just is like trying to get out this whole time. And so I'm going to see how long I can hold on to this worm. I got two of them just in case. So this worm here is slimy, right? Um, And this worm likes to wiggle. You guys see that? See that worm? He likes to wiggle and, and all that. One of the things we do when it rains out at our house is we go on worm hunts. And we go look at the puddles and try and find worms. And we put them in a cup like that and bring them home. And, and eventually we, we get rid of them. But the thing about worms is worms love to wiggle. They squirm. I don't know if you've ever put a worm on a fish hook. The second you put it on the fish hook, it squirms and wiggles and tries to get out. I'm going to put this away, okay? Ugh. And just so you know, I am going to wash my hands in front of everyone, okay? But worms, they like to wiggle, and they like to squirm. And you put it on a fish hook, and that worm is going to uh, wiggle and squirm and try and break free of the fish hook. When you pick a worm up, it, it, it wiggles and squirms. It, I've been surprised at how hard it's been to keep them in this cup because they want to escape. They squirm. And what Paul is doing in this passage is he's demonstrating for us our tendency to try and wiggle out of God's righteousness, to try and wiggle out and escape from the implications of God's righteousness. Because the implications of God's righteousness make us uncomfortable. The implications of God's righteousness, God's holiness, his righteousness to judge and to stand above humanity and expose, it makes us uncomfortable. And so we wiggle and we try and break free of it. God's truthfulness, his perfect truthfulness, his perfection, his righteousness, it exposes humanity's problem and exposes the gravity and weight of our sin. And so we try and wiggle and we try and escape because it's hard, it's heavy. And Paul gives us two ways that we wiggle. Two ways that we wiggle. And the first one is by questioning God's character. And we see this in the first few verses in our section. We wiggle out of God's righteousness by questioning God's character. The, the implication at, at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, it begs the question. Everything he said in Romans 2 begs the question. Well, what's, what's the good, what's advantage of being a Jew? If you're telling me that there's, there's no salvation in these features of the old covenant, if we're just as bad as everyone else, what good is it to be a Jew? And Paul says, actually, there's a lot of advantages to being a Jew. There's a lot of goodness in being Jewish. And he only gives one. And he says, first and foremost, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then he asks a question in verse 3. Let's read this again. What, what if some were unfaithful? 
Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The question uh, that Paul is asking, that his audience is asking, is will God break his promise to the Jews? Will God be faithful? Or will he fulfill his promise to the Jews? Or to put another way, has God totally abandoned the Jews? That's essentially the question here. God made promises to the people of Israel. Has God canceled Israel? Are they just forgotten and abandoned? And Paul says, no. And he is emphatic. He says, don't let any thought come near your mind. Put it away. Put it as far away as you can. And he's going to answer later in Romans the specifics of how God is going to accomplish his promises to the people of Israel. But Paul is setting the table. And he swiftly responds. He says, let me make one thing straight. Let's get one thing straight in this conversation. Let's get one thing straight as we consider God's righteousness. Let God be true. Let God be true. If that means that everyone else is a liar, God is true. God is the one who is unquestioned. God is the one who is set apart. He is different than all of our experiences in a broken, fallen world. He is beyond. He is transcendent. He is perfect. He is glorious. He is righteous. And when God says he will do something, he will do it. And he uses scripture to justify his claim. And he goes to Psalm 51, which is a confession of David, the king of Israel, the great king of Israel, failed miserably and sinned terribly. And Paul quotes that, and he says, uh, he quotes this psalm in verse 4. But the beginning of the psalm says this, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And what Paul is trying to help us understand is that God's righteous character is vindicated in his judgment. The question begs, is God still righteous when he judges? How could he be righteous when he's judging his own people? And Paul says, let's let's." Get one thing straight. God is righteous. He is always righteous. And he will be true no matter what. No matter how it appears or how it seems. No matter if you can't see God being faithful, he will be faithful. And this is our anchor. And this is what we hold on to. The question that he's asking is God's character. Is is it still true? If God is judging, is God still who he says he is? And he flips it on his head and he says, actually, God's character is established in his righteous judgment. God's character is amplified. It is given HD status when he judges because he is bound by his righteousness to judge sin. He is bound in all of his goodness and all of his rightness to judge what is bad, what is evil, what is wrong. He cannot 
not judge. He must. And this is what Paul is trying to help us understand, that the character of God must remain true. In any conversation we're going to have in the church, let God be true. And it begs the question, then why do we wiggle? Why do we, why do we squirm? Why do we try and escape God's judgment? Because of sin. Because sin goes so deep and is so far-reaching that we are, our tendency is to mistrust. Our tendency is to doubt God. We have trust issues. That is, that is one way to talk about the sin problem. We have trust issues. And we don't want to skip over this here. Because what, what, what happens is, your experience in every relationship you have on the earth, in a fallen world, your experience is, People let you down. People break promises. People hurt you. And yes, our heart is broken and our tendency is to mistrust. But even so, every experience we have, every relationship we have has trained us to doubt, has trained us to mistrust. Even, even us that have good relationships. I want to be the best dad I can be, but I know that I'm going to let my kids down. That we, we all have this awareness that deep down, even if you have a good parent or a good boss or a good friend, you know that they could let you down, that they might let you down. And we know God is different. We, we believe God is different but our experience teaches us otherwise. And that's why we need to hold fast to this truth. That's why we need Paul to swiftly go. We're going to question the faithfulness of God. Let's get one thing straight. Let God be true. Get your heart there. Run to that reality that God, no matter what, no matter what the world says, no matter what your relationships do, no matter what your life, wherever it ends up, let God be true. Even if everyone else is a liar, every relationship you have had is broken and flawed and, and trains you to distrust, let God be true and cling there, run there. And you might be thinking, well, I, okay, I, I hear you, but I can't see it. This is exactly what Paul's audience was saying. They were saying, hey, we hear you. We understand the gospel that you're saying, but how is God going to accomplish the promises he made in the Old Testament? If this new covenant is, reality is true, if your gospel is true, how could God fulfill his promises? They couldn't see. And so it is with us as we engage in a fallen, broken world, as we try and live out the gospel and live a life of righteousness. There are times when we can't see it. How is God going to come through here? What is, how is this going to work out? How is God going to be glorified when this has gone so bad? And that's why we need this affirmation. 
let God be true. But the other thing that I wonder is part of the problem might be that our hope is misplaced in the wrong things. Our hope might, might be placed in things that God hasn't promised. And that's part of the work we need to do. We need to understand that God is trustworthy. That above all, God is the one that we are going to hold as the ultimate truth, reality, righteousness. We have to do that in these conversations. Even though our experience trains us differently. But the other aspect of this is we may be putting our hope in things God hasn't promised us. God hasn't promised his people a life of ease and comfort. But he has promised a good work. He has promised to bring the good work of the gospel to completion in your heart and life. You can take that to the bank. He is faithful and he is invested in the work of salvation, the good work in you. He will bring it to completion. God hasn't promised you a life of free of need. But he has promised you a very present help. God is a refuge and a strength, a very present help in time of need. He is there. He is with you in your need. All you must do is become aware of his protection, of his refuge, of his character and righteousness over you to protect you and guard you and help you in your time of need. At the end of the day, we wiggle because we question God's character and Paul is inviting us back to the reality of God is the one who is true. And in this conversation, we must start there and stay there because God is altogether different than our experiences and our hearts and our uh, reality. He is righteous and holy far above all of us. The second wiggle uh, is questioning the human problem. So the first wiggle is questioning God's character. The second wiggle is questioning the gravity and weight of our problem. And he addresses this in the second question, series of questions, in verse 5. He says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For how can God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned a sinner? These two questions... They're really the same thing. He's asking the same question, but what's interesting is the way he goes from universal, he's speaking theoretically, universally, and then he makes it personal. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? It's an audacious question. It's scandalous. And Paul is trying to surface this, this wiggle that we have. Say, eh, it's not that bad. It can't be that bad. If it was that bad, I would know, right? If it, was, if it was as bad as the Bible is telling me, we would, we would have some big problems. There would be a lot of concern. And uh, there's a translation, the message by Eugene Peterson, and he 
he nails this passage. And so I want to read it. This is what Eugene says is the the good translation of this passage. But if our wrongdoing only underlines and confirms God's right doing, shouldn't we be commended for helping out? Since our bad words don't even make a dent in his good words, isn't it wrong of God to back us to the wall and hold us to our word? These questions come up. The answer of such questions is no, a most emphatic no. How else would things ever get straightened out if God didn't do the straightening? It's simply perverse to say, if my lies serve to show off God's truth all the more gloriously, why blame me? I'm doing God a favor. It's audacious. And it's wrapped up in this wiggle, this tendency to say, "Eh, it's really not that bad. And it pulls us out of an awareness of God's righteousness and away from God's character. And what Paul is trying to do is reorient us. He's trying to say, hey, here are the wiggles. Stop wiggling. Stop squirming. There is goodness in God's righteousness. There is a priority in God's righteousness. And these questions are still an assault of God's character. But it's directly questioning God's righteousness to judge impartially. It's it's really an assault against this idea that God is going to judge all people in the same manner. And Paul responds in verse 6 and essentially says, if God doesn't judge according to truth, if God doesn't judge according to his character, then all is lost. And his audience, this argument would have been a slam dunk. His audience, the Jews, they would have, of course, God is going to judge the Gentile sinners. But even more, what he's helping us understand, that if God does not judge impartially, all is lost. We'd lose any distinction from good and evil. If God starts playing favorites, we're in trouble. God must judge according to his truth. And what that means is that he will judge his people and those outside of his people in the same manner. God must judge sinners all in the same manner. But we wiggle. We wiggle out of that. And we question, come on, it's not that bad. Because having to deal with God's judgment is heavy. It's real heavy. It's hard. Coming to grips with the reality of God's wrath, God's anger against sin, it's heavy. And there are, there are alternatives to truth in our day. Many people have made arguments for truth outside of the Bible. You can go inside yourself and create your own truth. Hey, you got your truth, I got mine. But what ends up happening is under that system, objective truth ceases to exist. There is no standard. Or, hey, you know what? That can't be true. God God can't be wrathful. God can't judge. I'm not sinful. The the core of my being is not wrong. It's good. And we go to the experts and the scientists and the scholars and say, that's where truth is. But if you look at that long enough, the historical record shows us that it's changing and sometimes contradicting itself. And so there's no stability 
There's no standard through the ages of righteous truth. And others say, hey, I know that won't be, that can't be true. I grew up in a church and God was painted as this hateful, wrathful, I'm going to get you. Totally an unbiblical view of God. And that person says, that can't be true. I'm going to search for truth. I, I know it's out there, but I don't know it, and I don't know if I'm going to ever find it, but I want to find it. It's this impersonal, detached. It, the truth is out there, but it provides no comfort. It provides no standard. And we're, we're asked, we, have, we have to ask the question, what if this is true? What if God is wholly righteous and we are utterly sinful? What if our problem is as bad as the Bible says? If that's true, then we have to answer to God's judgment. We must have an answer. We have, we have to find one. What is our answer? Is there any hope? Enter Jesus. Jesus is our answer to the judgment of God. The work of Christ is our answer to the judgment of God, where God pours out his wrath on Jesus. And as we put our hope and our trust and our life in Jesus, we are delivered from the wrath of God, from the judgment of God. And with Jesus, we can learn what it means to let God be true. We can learn what it means to say God is altogether righteous and good and wonderful, far beyond anything we could ever imagine. It's good news, isn't it? It's really good news. Um. So, I, I have this stool here, and it sits in my backyard. We have a couple stools in my backyard, and I see them all the time, because I come in through the back door often, and um, I think sometimes, when we think about the righteousness of God, I think it only stays up here. It only stays in that transcendent spot. And it, it, needs, it needs to be there, because it is there. God is altogether different. He is righteous. He is holy. He is faithful. But it's also present. <laughs> the righteousness of God is with us. As we read our Bibles... As you listen to the Dwell app in your car on the way to work, God's righteousness is with you. As you pray and you think on heaven and go to heaven and try and live out the righteous standard that comes from heaven, God's righteousness is with you. As you parent your kids, what is the standard by which you want to 
lead your kids to Jesus. It's the righteousness of God. Because the righteousness of God is woven into the creation. Because the creator is righteous. And if the creator is righteous, he created a world that runs on the righteousness of God. And if that's true, the righteousness is with us. And what this passage is inviting us to do, instead of wiggling out of the righteousness of God, instead of squirming and and crawling off the stage, if I took off that lid, the worm would already be off the stage. And instead of wiggling and squirming and escaping, what the Bible is inviting us into in this passage is to sit with Jesus, to sit and be still before the righteousness of God. Because when we're still, we become aware. Squirming takes a lot of work. Wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. The worm in the cup, like, all morning was trying to escape. He was just poking his head up. It takes work, striving, trying to get out, wiggle. When we become still, our attention is free to behold God. (laughs) There is God, and he is glorious. He is righteous. He is altogether good. And no matter what happens, let God be true. No matter what you're going through, the truth that we want to hold on to is that God is true. God is faithful. God is good. He has your best in mind. And in that, we also recognize how bad our problem is. So we recognize how good God is, how great he is, his his transcendent righteousness, and we understand how bad the problem is. When we become aware, we recognize reality as it is. And in that, we realize who God is, in our great need for the gospel. And that's where we want to be. That's where Paul is inviting us to stop wiggling and to sit before the righteousness of God because it's here that we become aware of who God is and how great the gospel is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Romans 3 and we thank you for your character and the realities that you are true, that you are altogether faithful, good, righteous. These are not truths that just belong up on a wall somewhere. These are truths that we want to grab onto with the hands of our heart. We want to hug with the the arms of our minds, and we want to put to work in our life. We want to be a people that are reflecting and mirroring your trueness, your greatness, your righteousness, and your all-sufficient grace. Oh, would you, would you help us? Would you make that true at Mosaic Church in the city of Richardson? That we would be a people who are sitting and stilling our hearts and becoming aware of who God is. And we trust you to do that. We hope you to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen.